I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and I'm here with my guest, Thomas Moore. If you want to find a really joyful approach to your religious life, return to joy and vitality and good humor and hope and a way to be in life and deal with all these things, all these things that bother us and depressions and challenges, that finding your own religion is a good way. That's an answer. And this, I spell it out as fully as I can. Thomas Moore is the author of the best-selling book, Care of the Soul. He was a monk for 12 years, a musician, a university professor, and a psychotherapist. And today he lectures widely on holistic medicine, spirituality, psychotherapy, and the arts. He has a PhD in religion from Syracuse University. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you, Anthony. And you have written quite a number of books, and I think the one that is most well-known is The Care of the Soul that you wrote in 1992, I believe right. it was. And by the way, we are here at the hotel where you're staying, which is the Fairmont Sonoma. And so we'll hear a lot of background noise from the lobby and so forth, but just to give you an idea. I like where that, we are. actually. You do? I like having a little background, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the world, you know. Yes. So in the foundational book of the soul, you write about bringing the soul back to life and the difference between, you're a psychotherapist, mm -hmm. and uh, the difference between the care of the soul and psychotherapy. Talk to us a bit about what you meant by that. What was your intention? Well, I guess I, I understood, I was very interested in psychotherapy. I'd been trained in kind of a Rogerian therapy. And uh, I was doing a, lot, a regular practice at the time. And um, I hadn't written much. I'd written a few little books, but nothing big. Yeah. And um, well, I mean, that, not that they weren't important. Dark Eros is a book on sadomasochism. It's one of my favorites. But, um, but uh, anyway, uh, I saw, I mean, I, I've been reading about and saw how training was done for psychotherapy. And I felt it was much too outer directed. It was all about how to get along in life and solve your problems. And I felt that after my studies in Jung and work with uh, Hillman, that um, maybe there would be a, a kind of therapy that I could carve out for myself that would be more focused on really exploring the mysteries of the soul. And it's the inner world that you're speaking of. It's hard to say inner outer with that because I don't, I, that, that, yes, in some ways inner, but at the same time, of course, the fantasies and the emotions are all outward as well. So it's, a, it's not entirely inner, but certainly it, it's, not, it's not that outer behavior kind of thing. It includes the inner as well, yeah. And you speak about in the care of the soul, the soul is an application of poetics to everyday life. Talk to us a little bit about the poetics of everyday life. Well, again, we tend to take everyday behavior literally as fact. And we try to solve the factual problems, which is rather mechanical. Like people might say, how can I stop smoking? Quite a mechanical question. Right. I mean, it goes deep, yeah. but kind of a mechanical question. How do I, how do I get, you know, how do I keep my marriage going, you know? If it's, you can do that on the surface, and, and usually people do that, and they try to communicate better and make important decisions and that kind of thing. But I, when I do that work, I try to help one person in a partnership really appreciate the mysteriousness of the other. 
and to protect that mysteriousness. Don't try to understand or figure out, but really uh, To enjoy. embrace it whole yeah, cloth. Yeah. Oh. That's very different from analysis and going, what's going on here? Oh, and I know. No, let's I, go and deconstruct. No, and No, I don't do any of that. So the embrace of the whole person. Yeah. And actually more than that, would you say? Yeah. The, the embrace of the coupleness. The coupleness and the mystery of the couple. So we might explore how ah. to come together. Usually there's a story about magic there, you know, something unusual, synchronicities and yeah. you know, all kinds of things. So we try to see that, we try to see the poetics of a relationship in that sense, like what is, what are the stories? Really take those stories seriously. How you met, that's an important story. What has happened since? That's a very interesting dramatic story that develops out of there. That's what I mean by the poetics. It's focusing on the stories told in the, how this experience has been imagined rather than some kind of fact. How it's been imagined. Yeah. So that could be a little different for each person well, in a relationship, could be of course. Entirely, well, right. you'd expect it to be entirely different. Right, right. So we don't look for sames. I'm not looking for compatibilities. I'm not interested in commitments, any of those things. I'm interested in the, the mystery of these people coming together. And if, if they can appreciate that, I think they have a chance of staying together. Because there's some real richness in that. Oh, yeah. It's that is rich. not found necessarily in deconstruction. There's no richness in that other thing. So uh, how has Care of the Soul evolved since 1992? We're talking about, you know, uh, 20, 22 20, years. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. 22 years. I can't, I can't believe that. That's right. <laughs> I thought you were wrong. <laughs> well. I have continued to write, for one thing. Right. Many I've books. I've written a lot of books since yeah. then. People don't know this, you know, but someone interviewed me uh, the other day and said, well, now you've written a book since Scare of the Soul. And I thought, oh, boy, I worked hard. You About know, 10. <laughs> more than that, even. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, that's one thing that went on, and I've been exploring the really various dimensions. Of, for example, a book, The Soul of Sex, and a book on yes. work, yeah. and this book on religion. You know, I've been exploring different sides of that. Whatever was most interesting, interesting to me at the moment. And um, I don't think, you know, it's funny, I don't think that the basics of, of the book, Care of the Soul, have shifted for me. Because it's all, it seems like you're approaching the mystery from this gateway and from that one. That's right. From our human experience. That's right which is part of the delight, I think, in your work. Yeah. Since 1992, we've got the internet and smartphones and corporate awareness and the 1%, but there's still mystery there. There is. And you also talk about, and I do want to come back to that. Forgive me, I'm going to ask a, an odd question, or not Sorry. odd, but what is the soul? Well, it's, it's very hard to describe and to define, but it's not impossible. I, I think that, uh, I still think, I mean, this has been criticized, but I still think that the word depth is important for the soul. That we go deep in the soul and we go high in the spirit. So the oh. depth of the soul is really significant, you know, the word depth. Um, so there, it's, you might say that's the, looking at your deep feelings, let's say deep feelings about home, those are very deep and mysterious about home. 
uh, complicated. Complexity is another quality of soul, very com complex. And um, our deep uh, memories are important to the soul, our deep attachments. See, this, in the spiritual realm, we, people usually like to be detached. Yeah. But in the soul realm, you want to be attached. Attachment mm. is really a valuable thing. You mean sort of in the attachment theory that is, is so current these days? I wasn't thinking of that. Oh. But maybe. I don't know. What do you mean by attachment? What I mean is being attached to, to your, the place where you were born. Oh. Attached to not able to leave or not able to forget or you know be a real connection to leave behind a real connection yeah yeah that's actually beyond something cognitive that we would think about it is it's not cognitive okay but, and that's the difference that's one significant difference between the values of soul and spirit there because it's certainly for the for the spirit spirit part of a person to being detached can be very useful to be able to travel. Uh -huh. For me, I had, to, I had to find some sort of detachment in order to travel so much to speak about these things mm. because I had to yeah. leave my family. But yeah. there's another element there that where I want to be attached is not a bad thing. No, right. Well, that's a, it's a, a real connection, as you say. Yeah, it's a real connection. Yeah. And there's a mystery to that connection. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that really helps. And you sort of talked around it what the soul is. Oh yeah, right, I didn't, I didn't say what it was. Well, what I, I would say that the soul is this, that, that part of us. You know what the traditional uh, philosophers have said, that, that soul makes us human. And give, it's, it's really the source of our humanity. So it means like if you meet somebody who looks like a real human being, you know, and you, you, want, to, you, can, you want to spend time with them, they may have a sense of humor, they may have been through life and show that they've really lived. That's all, those are all qualities of soul. You know, it strikes me there's a Confucian term called Ren, which means human-heartedness. Mm -hmm. This is what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Confucius really felt that Ren was perhaps one of the highest virtues a human being yeah. could engage in. So there's an authentic quality to our humanness. Right. And we're connecting and we are engaging with the mystery and free to become immersed in that mystery, would you say? Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, this is great. But then we come to a world soul. Yeah. Called, as many people know, uh, Anima Mundi. Yeah. So talk to us about Anima Mundi, and actually it seems to be continually evolving. Well, you know, in some places, uh, especially in early literature, when you read about Anima Mundi, you get the notion that the Anima Mundi is some cosmic kind of thing, you know, a plasma in the ether or something, and that's fine. But the way people like James Hillman and Robert Sardello, two good friends of mine who influenced me a lot, the way they explore it is very concretely. So they're interested in how you find the soul in the actual world we live in. Like where, where is you mean this, in the material stuff? Where is the soul in our automobiles? What about our, <laughs> where is the soul in our hotels? Yes. Know? And the things like that, can, you, uh, can, we, can we foster soul, soulful style values in the world, a very concrete, everyday world? 
That's their question. And I, th I found that quite fascinating, although I haven't pursued it myself the way those two did. Right. Did you come to any conclusion about how we do that? Uh, well, yes, but usually it depends on each in each case. Oh, so, of course. Yeah, we're talking here about intimacy and connection. So you can use values like that and look at anything. Like you look at a, I go to, med, I, I've written about medicine. I, I go into hospitals and people will say, can you tell us how we can get, make a more soulful hospital? So what I think is, well, one of the things we have to do is have more connection between staff, members of the staff, between the administration and the workers, among doctors and patients, between patients, and, and foster family because family is so important for the soul. So have a place for families. Oh, yes. See, once you get the basics of what the soul requires, then you can apply it in each case. And, and then it makes this that's tremendous. Mamundi. Oh, okay. And I also, and I'll come back to this again to refer to my background in Confucianism. He says, if you want the world to be peaceful, you have to be peaceful, and then your family becomes peaceful, and then your community becomes peaceful, and so forth. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm talking with my guest, Thomas Moore, who is, uh, has written a book called A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but we're going to have to take a short break. But how can people contact you, Thomas? They can contact me best through my website, careofthesoul.net. Great. We're going to take a short break and be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're here with my guest Thomas Moore, who has written a book called A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. And before the break, Tom, we were talking about the Anima Mundi. And I want to talk about another book that you wrote before uh, the uh, Religion of One's Own. And you actually wrote this, it seems, before Care of the Soul. Oh, yes. Which is called The Planets Within the Astrological Psychology of Marsilio Ficino. How did you come to medieval astrology? And I have an interest because I'm an astrologer. Right, you would be. Well, um, can I tell the story? Of Please. It? Okay, I was at Syracuse University doing my doctoral studies in religion. I had to have a doctoral, I had to have a dissertation topic. I, was, I found it difficult to find one. So I went into the library one day and just reached for a book. I mean, it's one of these stories of just oh, taking boy. a book. I reached up without knowing what I was grabbing off the top shelf. It was one volume of a multi-volume set in black and it was in French. And you see it now, I and can I, tell. I did, I can see it right now. And I just pulled that off. I was so high, I just couldn't even choose. I just put my finger up and pulled the volume down, opened it up, and here was an essay in French. On, and my French isn't that great, but you know, you have to read some languages. Right, right. So um, it was on Marsilio Ficino, and he was described as a, an astrologer, a priest, a magician in the old sense, um, a uh, translator, a Platonist, and a theologian. I thought, boy, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And this, the other thing was It leapt into your hands. It leapt into my hands, and he hadn't been translated to English at this point. Oh, really? No. So that was oh, useful for me because yes. the dissertation, and I, know, I knew Latin from having been in a religious order. That's right. So yeah. that was not a problem, although yeah. his Latin was very difficult. 
Uh, That's very different, I'm sure, than yeah, the liturgical. Yeah, different, different than the kind I know, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but I, I went through it and I translated it. And uh, it was called, uh, what, the article was about a book of his called De Vita, on life, or they usually say the book of life. And it was in three volumes. And the third volume was his most popular book, the one that everyone read and passed on. It had a big future. It was called De Vita Celitas Cambaranda, which means on how to design your life according to the sky. Ooh, that's lovely. Something like that. Yeah. And he goes into exploring the planets especially. Something about, some about the signs, but mainly about planets. I mean, basically astrological, but with a focus on the meaning of the planets. And in particular, for him, how to bring the qualities of each of the of then classical seven planets, right. how to bring those qualities into your life. First you diagnose where you are and what you need, and then you go out and try to get that planetary material from the world. But you have to understand what, where to go for that particular planetary. And this is right down the line of what Hillman talks about uh, with archetypes. Yes, it is, yeah. I found out later, I found out later that Hillman found, uh, stumbled on Ficino himself. Oh, really? Yeah. And, oh, that's... Uh, but he didn't do a, a, you know, a study of it. I mean, I, right. I really sat down and... And as an aside, I'm sure you know about Lawrence Hillman, James's yeah. son, is an astrologer. Yeah. Which is a real interesting endorsement from one of the shining lights of the 20th century in uh, archetypal psychology. That's right. Yeah. Ficino then became, I thought it would be a... I thought that studying him would be a dissertation that I would write and forget. But in fact, everything I've done since then has been based on that. Yeah, yeah. Everything. And I want to come to a real key point, as, as you know, as we discussed before we began the interview, I'm a piano technician and an astrologer. And I've looked at many birth charts and I thought, huh, the birth chart seems to be a way of a, a particular arrangement for how the soul expresses itself, and if there can become a rapprochement between all the various factors of the chart, as one must do in a tempering an octave of, a, of an instrument, then a true music can happen. And you talk about, I, I believe it's Ficino talks about tempering the instrument he of the does. soul. He does. And he, and he equates the seven planets with the seven tones of the scale. And this is something that is really deeply resonant with me. I guess it would be. And I'm going, you know, I had this idea that this was a correct idea. Mm -hmm. And I am also, uh, I play the harp in oh, public yeah. places. Oh. And I think Ficino played the lyre. He did. And he talked about that channel of spirit flowing between objects and consciousness. Mm -hmm. So that one could go into a room and play music in that room and change not only the energy, but the room. Absolutely. And the quality, he, he said he was very interested in choosing the proper music so that you get the quality you, you need. Yes. So the diagnostics always have to be there. You have to know what you need. And then you choose the kind of music to play. Talk to us a little bit about Ficino's understanding of, I think Ficino was a Pythagorean, actually. He was, sure. And talk to us about Ficino's Pythagoreanism. Well, you know, the, the basic, when we talk about Pythagoreanism, I think what we mean primarily is that 
Pythagoras's insight that the world itself is musical. Yes. That uh, there are certain, that if we could discover the music of, of the world in nature, and then if we can make our world in musical ways, using that same knowledge, we would be more, we would have a, a, a more, what would you say, a more harmonious world that would yes. work better. Because he believed, you know, Pythag the Pythagorean idea is that, you know, that if you are, there are only certain ways you can be really in tune. I mean, those, and if you count the vibrations, you know it so much better than I do. If you count those vibrations and get the right proportions, they yes. have to be quite exact. Now I understand you that. Bet. Except in a well, you know, in a well-tempered well, scale. Well, and but that's a whole other topic. That's a whole other topic. But I mean, in a pure sense. Right. Which we'll talk about Pythagoras. We're talking about pure measurements of, of, of strings or tones. So if you get those, let's say you have a proportion like two to three, or you know, some of those basic five very to simple four, ones. and yeah, four to three, yeah, two to one, yeah. Uh, if you have those kind of proportions, then what, what people who follow Ficino did immediately after him was start making buildings based on those proportions. So they made Pythagorean buildings. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. So the, the they but they did that with the Ficino sense of being in tune with the sky so that what we do here is not just haphazard and it's not it's not um, discordant yes that we build actually has those proportions and i've done this myself you know in my own home i've built rooms based on these pythagorean numbers and boy it really is special oh uh, and it's so interesting that we have kind of in our modern culture has disregarded that yeah. to a large extent, and there's a real discordance then, yeah. and disharmony. Yeah, yeah. When, you just, if, when you just build a building based on practicalities, you don't, you don't get that, that, that harmony that comes. Pythagoras would say is archetypal, I think, you know, yes. because we would use the word archetypal because it means that it is in accord with the way the world is. Actually is. Is, yeah. right. Yeah, well, and again, to bring in this idea of soul and mystery, mm -hmm. when the proportions are right, then we become transparent to the mystery, would you say? Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. We are living, I would say mostly we are living in accord with that mystery. We're not, we're not fighting it. Our world is, is showing it. It's like everything is in tune, attunement. You know, right. Everything is in tuned, in tune. And therefore, we're not, we're not fighting it so much. And if, let's say, we're in a building that has this kind of an archetypal uh, harmony to it. You can feel it. And anything you do in it is going to be easier to do to accomplish because you're not struggling against your environment all the time. Absolutely. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm here with my guest, Thomas Moore, who has written a book called A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a personal spirituality in a secular world. And how can people contact you, Thomas? People can contact me through my website, careofthesoul.net. I also do a daily tweet. Uh, oh, you do? On, yeah, it's called uh, Thomas Moore Soul on Twitter. And is, and is there a hashtag, I don't tweet, so? <laughs> no, I think that's all you need. Just Thomas Moore? Thomas Moore Soul. Soul, okay, great. Well, we'll take a short break and be right back, so stay tuned.
I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are here with my guest Thomas Moore, who has written a book called A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. And before the break, Tom, we were talking about the cosmic resonance of Pythagorean ideas. And now we come to your new book that is A Religion of One's Own. You started out as a monk. Tell us what a, a Catholic Servite monk, what are the distinguishing characteristics of, of that order? Of that life? Well, first of all, that order was founded in uh, the 13th century in Italy. So it's an old one. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not entirely monastic. It is part monastic. So we live in that world. You live a monastic life every day. But at the same time, you don't spend your whole life in the monastery. You might work in a college or a school or a parish or oh, something. Oh, okay. You know, it's not. But you do take vows. But you do take vows. And you know, the other thing um, I've come to understand about your work is that you are an ecstatic. Would you say? <laughs> that, that your work is, and, and I, I was very interested, I listen a lot to Alan Watts, and he talks about the word ecstatic is to stand outside. <laughs> I see, in that sense of the word, yes. Yeah. How do you stand outside? Uh, is it oh, your... it's a really, it's a big value for me not to be part of this world, not to, you know, to be out of it to something. I guess that's part of the monk's life. You know, in the, in the uh, monastic life, they talk about contemptus mundi. Really? It, do, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean disdain for the world. It means not participating completely. Oh. A certain distancing, removal from life. And yeah. I've, I've never let that go. I've often felt that, you know, I don't want to participate completely. So you do hold a part of your life as, as sacred? Well, not, not, a, not a part of the life as sacred, but as private, perhaps, or? Well, as, as not fitting in. I mean, I'm happy not to fit in. I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really uh, a heartening thing to many of us who don't seem to fit in mm -hmm. and aren't willing to compromise so that we can fit in. Yeah. So, and that really brings me then to a religion of one's own. What do you mean by religion? Uh, what I mean by religion, my, my understanding of religion is not an institution and not a set of beliefs. Not, I mean, I, that is religion, certainly, but it's not the kind of religion I'm interested in. I want to reimagine what religion is. So I would redefine it. I would say it is more the experience that any person might have of the, the, the very profound mysteries that are going on in our lives all the time. Uh, things like we talked about how you mysteriously meet somebody and maybe get right, married or right. fall in love or something. Or mysteriously, like for me, mysteriously, I never thought I'd ever have children. And I have this 22-year-old daughter now, you know, and this what she's done for my life. That's a total mystery. The mystery of Care of the Soul being a successful book and allowing me to to raise my family. Right. <laughs> That's total mystery. I had nothing to do with it. If I had anything to do with it, I would have done it many other times. <laughs> so it seems to be a response from the cosmos, right? Yes, it's, it's a two-way thing. It's, religion to me is a two-way thing. It's, for us, it's, a, it's acknowledging that the world is alive, it's meaningful, yeah. that there's purpose, but that we don't make all that up, that we are responding just to a large extent. We are responding too. We're letting the world to be alive, let the oh, world okay. have a soul. Anima Mundi again. So it is a dialogue. A, a, it's a dialogue. A, a dialogue or a dyad 
Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. to me. That would be religion. So inform. Uh -huh. But I see. I think formal religion tells us how this kind of religion could be. So uh, the formal religions address these mysteries through rituals and through music and architecture right. and theology. They try to find ways to depict and speak about these things that are really mysterious. Right. So right. I would say that a religion of our own, that we can also live that way in the world, but we don't have to do it only through a formal religion. You can do it yourself in so many different ways. And in that way, kind of create your own religious, your own religious forms. I've written down here, aren't all religions personal in practice? Yes, you know, I, always, I always quote Emerson who said that every church has a membership of one. <laughs> and he means that exactly what you said, I think. Okay. That, yes, because we're all, it's all practiced individually. Yeah. Absolutely. Because some say that one must accept a religious dogma whole cloth. I know. And that, you know, you can't just, uh, it's not a buffet that you can just choose right. that and just choose that, you know? Right. Well, that's true. Uh, that's what a lot of people do, and I think that's mm -hmm. what I want to move away from in this book, is it's very, very com complex because people usually think of religion as, as the set of beliefs or an organization that they submit to, they submit themselves to. Right. That submission you can submit yourself, okay, but it's dangerous. a dangerous thing to do because it's easy to go too far. And If you don't have a check on your own yeah, idea right. of what that's is right. appropriate and not. Especially when the, the, the group you're, you're submitting yourself to wants you to submit more. It's very difficult. And tells to you you must that. submit yeah, more. Yeah, exactly, right. And that leads to what psychologically you know, we would call masochism. So, in a way, what I'm trying to do with this book is to create a non-masochistic religion. You know, it's, a, it's a religion where you don't have to be masochistic. You don't have to surrender too much of yourself. You do surrender, but not to some organization. You surrender to the things that are worthy of surrender, and that is to life itself, to what you imagine to be the source of life or the very core of life, or to the commu world community, to the needs of your planet, all that submission which turns into service, is so much infinitely better than this masochistic thing where you submit to someone's, some organization. And someone's idea, or even to submit to your own idea. Yeah. Because, uh, again, Alan Watts would talk about uh, the idolatry of ideas. Right. You know? It comes to mind also about Confucianism had been associated with very strict ritual that was actually imposed later. But I had a sense that when a ritual is well created, it really is a reflection of what's going on in the natural world. So that we align, the ritual helps us align to the momentum of the natural world. Does this seem uh, correct to you? Oh yes. Um, yeah, I think that, that there, there has to be, well it's an attunement to, again, you know, it's being in tune with that, with, the, with nature and learning from nature how to be and realizing that we too are part of nature. And that's kind of a portal toward that religious, that's part of the religious impulse. You know, one of the things that I have continued to really study deeply is that split that human beings made in Western culture that said God is there and You're I'm right. here mm -hmm. and never will I have the opportunity. And God's, and uh, Alan Watts again said that in Christianity we did this 
uh, allowed one human being to become divine, and then we kicked him upstairs so he wouldn't bother us anymore. <laughs> but you're saying it's a healing of that split between the divine Definitely. and ourselves. Now, now that's an interesting thing because when Christianity began, I mean, just by the way, recently, just a few years, a couple of years ago, I translated the Gospels myself from Greek because I wanted to. Fantastic. I really wanted, I, I've studied the Greek thought and Greek mythology a lot, and I wanted to see what's really going on in those, mm -hmm. those in that language. And what I find there is so different. It doesn't have that, the masochism isn't there. It's not the King James. It's not, no, no, that all came later. And then the other thing about it is that I think you see the Gospels are come before the split of paganism from monotheism. Oh, they do. In a way, they do. Not, not largely, but they're the, it's there, I think. You find that. Yeah. I hadn't known. Yeah, it seems to me, my impression is that what happened was that the, the gospel approach is, is really quite in tune with nature. There are a lot of stories about nature and living according to nature. But na that natural religion, you know, it was identified with paganism, and then, and then uh, the paganism uh. was demonized. Yeah, the Pagan. It was, it was it, yeah, right. It was demonized it's not the quite city. early, quite yeah. early. Clement of Alexandria, I forget his dates, what, second century or third. He was one of them that demonized paganism. And that split them, pushing paganism aside then, instead of harmonizing with it somehow, pushing it aside led us to have this distance from the natural. Yeah. Which I think has hurt these monotheistic religions. Oh, tremendously. Was, did Augustine have much of a part in that also? Oh, he had a big part in it. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. He came along, I don't think he inaugurated it, but he put the nail in it. Oh, okay. It. Yeah. All right, all right. Because, you know, the next thing about this is in creating one's own religion, there's a, you talk about a spiritual creativity. Yeah. Tell us about spiritual creativity. Well, it's what we're just talking about right. now. Instead yeah. of, it's the opposite of spiritual passivity. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So instead of just saying, okay, tell me what to do, what to think, which is the passive. Right. This is what I'm suggesting here, the religion of one's own. It doesn't mean, the religion of one's own doesn't mean mine and it's all self-absorbed and narcissistic or anything like that. Right, right. And it's not something I just put together from a bunch of pieces, it's not that. But it is, um, it is, it is something that is, uh, uh, that is something that I cre can create. I can create out of material that's there. In other words, I can take myself, personally, I can take my Catholic background right. and, and revitalize it. And, and make it my own instead of... And that's how it becomes revitalized. Yeah. Is you make it your own. That's right. And that's Outside the of the dogma. Right. And that's the creative... Well, maybe not outside the dogma, outside the dogmatism. Oh, good. Yeah. That's a very Because the dogma itself is pretty good. <laughs> really, the yeah. teachings are, yeah. not, are pretty good. Yeah. I think Catholicism and Christianity have so much to offer, but oh, it's yes. been all covered over by all this authoritarianism and battles between, you know, who's right and wrong on, on minor points of theology. Because in creating one's own religion, in engaging with the mystery, mm -hmm. we have a mystical experience, would you right. say? Yes, you would. And I think, I have this idea that people have mystical experience a number of times a day 
but they don't realize it. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. They could have more. And these chicks sent me high talks about uh, uh, flow states, and that's part of what I'm talking about. Exactly. You disappear into you disappear. the love of doing. You disappear into something, something that's right, and there's something positive too. I mean, there's a way in which you can lose yourself that's crazy. And I know about that, you know, having yeah. been a therapist. Yeah. I know, I see people get lost psychotically, and that's, that's, not, that's not pleasant. No. But to be able to be lost in music yeah. or to, in tuning, I love to. Well, I, I tell stories in some of my work about how I was tuning a piano and then the piano disappeared. Yeah. And I go, what? <laughs> no, it just became so thoroughly that's right. uh, attuned that it became functionally transparent. Right and it no longer impeded so I could sit at the piano and there would just be this flow of music. And that's what you're talking about. That's what I'm talking people about. People developing in their own personal practice. And you can do that, any, that's right, all day long. I, I stood in front of a group last night in Menlo Park and said, I just told them, I said, everyone here can be a mystic and should be. But you gotta find your own way to do that because what works, what takes you there for one person will not be true of the other person. And the Buddha said that. If you well, don't, of course. Yeah. If, if you don't like what I'm doing, don't do it. <laughs> find some, and, it, and it doesn't mean anything unless you find it yourself. Yeah. You know? So again, I want to come back and ask about a concrete response to the mysterious and honoring the profound. Mm -hmm. That's how I define religion, right? Okay. Talk to us about, I mean, it, it, the, the mystic states don't necessarily seem so concrete. Well, they can be. I mean, like, you don't think tuning a piano is concrete? Well, it's pretty concrete. Ah, that's right. That's what I mean. I, yeah, think, okay. I, see, I think what we've done okay. is a lot of people imagine mysticism to be totally unrelated to the world. And right, the right, farther right. Out, away from it you get, the better. But it's actually the opposite. But it's the opposite. Okay. And I, at least I prefer it. See, this is what I would call a more soul, soulful mysticism. It would be in the world instead of away from it. And you know who my, my main model for this is Henry David Thoreau because in his, yeah. in his writings, in Walden and other writings, he's, he's very right on about this, that you find your mysticism in your neighborhood and in what you're doing and in your, your making and in your uh, traveling in nature and so on. And you talk about a secular spirituality. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, that, that it would be in the world instead of out of it. So I don't mean a secularistic spirituality. That wouldn't make any sense. That's a no. contradiction. But right. secular meaning, in the sense of meaning, the very, the very simple things we do all the time could be the source of your mysticism. One example that I've been giving as I've been talking is um, when I go to a doctor's or dentist's office and I just sit while I'm waiting, I sit. And instead of taking a magazine, and people are offering me tea and coffee and magazines and books, and asking if I'm all right and all that. But if you can sit, those moments, we have invitations to sit in meditation constantly. Yeah, yeah. Or those kind of meditative moments. And our mind has been, oh, pulled into our phones and our, yeah. and our computers. And our, uh, it's really important to take quiet time. Yeah. Yeah. We have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm here with my guest Thomas Moore, who has written a book called A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. And how can people contact you? People can contact me at my website, careofthesoul.net. 
that's the best way. Great. Well, we'll take a break and be right back, so stay tuned. I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are here with my guest Thomas Moore, who has written a book called A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. And before the break, Tom, we were talking about the daily concrete experience of mysticism. And with me, it seems, oh, I can't remember the, I think the movie was called August Rush, where in the center of the film, the little boy says to the guy, the New York uh, crazy, can't people hear this music? He said, yeah, they can hear it, but not everyone is listening. And so it seems that listening is really important. And I'm looking here at tradition as a resource. Talk to us about tradition as a resource. Well, I think a lot of people see the religious traditions not as resources, but as um, options to choose. So let's say, okay. are you, are you, you may, we might say, are you a Buddhist or are you a Confucianist right. or are you a Catholic or whatever? And um, that means that you, you join up and you take, what's, you take what's there. I mean, you have to accept. If you, if you disagree with it, you probably should leave because it's a matter of buying into what's, what's given to you there. Mm -hmm. And um, I, th I imagine religion shifting that we don't get rid of the traditions and the organizations. You don't, there's no need to do that. And just That would be a bad thing because there's so much richness in Oh. So much in all of those traditions, right. but we could we could use them as resources. I mean, I have a kind of a utopian vision where we'd have these churches and temples around in a, in a village or in a town or a city, and the question wasn't do you belong to that church, but the question would be what can that church offer you for your own spirituality? I would right. say your own religion. Right. What what can it <clears throat> offer for you? So let's go and spend a day, a week, a month, or a few years with those Confucian uh, philosophers. Let's spend time, let's go now. I want to go, and, like I do that now, I go to Ireland. When I go to Ireland, I often stay at a monastery there. And that's, that's available to me, but I'm not a member. They're very nice right. to let me be right. a monk for what, however I'm, yeah. while I'm there. Well, I have to say that in a way, I, I was raised Universalist Unitarian. And that was what they told us kids. You know, go to that church and see what they're doing, and go to that right. church, and go to that church. And mm -hmm. if you like what they're doing, explore it a bit. And if it means a lot to you, then do that. But don't do it if you don't want to. And my friends are saying, you mean you don't have to study the catechism, yeah, right. and you don't have yeah, to do this? Right, and right. I'm going, no. I mean, we're watching Margaret Mead in the basement of the church, you know, with the right. Papua New Guineans, you know? And right. So I suppose you could say I've been doing this all along. Well, yes, I think some people have been doing some yeah. of these things all along. Yeah. I guess that's also why my work is usually, usually uh, accepted pretty well by the UU churches. Yeah. Well, but there's a tremendous freedom here. Yes, there is. A freedom, freedom to engage with authentic human love. Right. With and joy. With joy instead of pain. Yeah. Yeah, well, and there we get back to the masochism. So right. is that kind of an indicator that you're not exactly on the right path if you're, you, you're kind of in pain about Oh, yeah, if you're in pain about it, something's wrong. I mean, yeah, you've got to do something. Doctor, it hurts. Don't do it then. <laughs> no. And you know, the thing is, the thing is, I'm sure of this, and I've heard it on my, this book tour I've been on yeah. over and over again just recently. 
so many, many people have been, have been battered by the churches, yeah. you know, by religion. In one way or another, often very seriously. Yeah. And I sometimes Wounded. tell them, kind of jokingly, I tell them that I wouldn't have a job as a therapist if it weren't for the churches. <laughs> because, well, it's true that there's so much suffering based on what religion has done to people. Oh. And some of it's severe. Yeah, so. yeah. I want to talk about a number of chapters in your book. We've talked about the natural mystic, which is your chapter two. Right. You talk about dream practice and right. dreams as transcendent. I also wanted to put in a plug here for Jung's active imagination mm -hmm. and his relationship with his guide, Philemon. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about dream practice. There, there's a lot that could be said about dreams in general and working with dreams and so on, but the thing I want to emphasize in this particular context in this book is that Dreams could be seen as part of your religion, as part of your spiritual practice, because hmm. what, when, you, when you work with dreams, when you stay close to your dream life, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're getting hints at the very deepest strata of your existence. And these dreams, I think it's like they're, they're very, very deep. They're beneath, they lie beneath so much of what's going on in life. And you see this because uh, as I work with people, especially in therapy with their dreams, um, they have, they're, they're concerned about something going on in life, but, and they can't work it out, can't work it out, can't, they try to figure it out and can't. And then we look at the dream and we see, we see this really primal kind of pattern going on, this, this thing. And it's, when you look at it in the dream, you realize, wow, I've been living this pattern in many parts of my life and for a long time so that it's, it has this like originating quality to it. That's why I think it's part of the spiritual or religious mm -hmm. practice. Yeah. It gets to the very foundations of existence. Because it, inf it informs us of what part of our mysterious connection. Exactly, exactly. And, and they, are dream they are images. And this is a, a clue because the things that go on in, within us and also in our world, like we were talking about marriage, Right are extremely mysterious and very difficult to express. And therefore, we turn to poetic language of some kind to oh, express yeah. it. And that's what dreams are. They are poetry in a way. They're not rational little, no. I always say, wouldn't it be nice if your dreams were little teletypes telling you what to do and explaining who you are? They're not. They're very primal type, type images. So next, I want to talk about your chapter five, erotic spirituality. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about your, well, your experiences. Your, your Mandela Watts wrote about that. He wrote a book called The Erotic Spirituality. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. About the temples in India, the erotic temples in India. Yeah. But for me, uh, my interest in it is that, again, it comes from being a therapist because it seems to me <clears> that, that here, that's how this works, is that the religions, for one reason or another, Maybe it's just spirituality in general, but I think it's the religions too. Have had a trouble, had had trouble with sex. Have had a problem with sex for forever, for centuries. Yeah. And they, it's not necessary. It's so it, it's so common that you just think it might come along with religion. It's part of religion to be negative about sex, but it isn't. It doesn't have to be. And so what I'm advocating here is that in a religion of your own, you don't have to play into that negativity about your sensual life and about enjoying you know, physical life and sexuality and all of it. If there is a contradiction, if there is conflict between those two things, something has to be done because both of them suffer from it. 
And it's such a primal. Uh, Again, it's primal. Uh, expression of human beingness. It is. And it can be, so you're saying it can be brought into a mysterious sacred exactly. realm exactly. and used as yet another vehicle, another vehicle into the mystery. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to ask also about, uh, we're coming to the end here, yeah. about beyond the self um, and the inner guidance and skills for oh, yeah. an intuitive life. Oh, yeah. Uh, there I, I kind of go off into the deep ends with, my, with this book because I discuss some of my own methods of trying mm. to be more intuitive and follow some inner guidance. It seems to me that if you're going to create a religion of your own, uh, you don't want that to be too rational because, or rationalistic maybe is what I mean. You don't want it to be in that realm that's so mental and you, you're logical and you figure everything out. That means that you as a person, you might have to live in a way where you rely more on intuition than on uh, practical decision making. And that's the, the so religion, hard for some people. It's very hard to let go for of that a lot control. of modern people. Yeah. And that means, it means accept, accepting your ignorance, what you don't know about things. It means uh, going on hunches and intuitions. It means reading the signs around you. And these are all things that religions have supported for centuries. So it's, I'm not making this up as part of religion. But I am suggesting that we could, we could do that more seriously and we'd be a happier people because as we rationalize everything, we become kind of dry and wooden. Relationships suffer. We don't enjoy, we don't yeah. enjoy the world as much. If you start using your intuition more and just follow that, you're going to find yourself going into areas of life you wouldn't go into, you'd be afraid of. Rationally, yes. Yeah, rationally, yes. you'd be afraid of, but you go into them. Life becomes more adventurous and more pleasurable. I think you don't, you don't um, burn out so much, whether it's work or life or what. You don't burn out so much because it's an adventure. You're really doing it. Well, and there's a connection to real vitality there. There's real vitality. That has not been killed by thought form. Exactly. Ellen Watts used to say you've got to trust your life. Exactly. There has to be a lot of trust. When I'm signing this book these days, I'm using the word trust very often because uh, I put that in there. Yeah. That's a very big issue. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do want to talk about natural magic uh -huh. before we're done. Tell us about natural magic and, and what it is. And Well, this is what I learned mainly from Ficino. He uses the word magia naturalis, natural magic. And what he means, it's ordinary magic. This is, first of all, it's not kind of spooky, supernatural magic. But more than that, it's the, the, ever, the, the magic of everyday life. And the best example I can think of that we might appreciate today is if you look at some of the ads in magazines or on television, some of them are very, very effective and powerful because of the language, a word they might use or an image they might use. Uh, I write about the Nike swish, yeah. swish or whatever they call it, yep. and, uh, as an image that has helped sell a lot of shoes yep. for a company. Well, that's magic, that's natural magic. Finding a word or a sign that actually has power, that can affect things. It's not rational, it's not saying, okay, you know, explaining all every single detail of how good the shoe is. But it's finding out what's magical for us, right? Yes. So we can then go to the mystery or that's right engage in the mystery exactly become and transparent that we can, and that we can live from that place instead of the rationalistic place yeah yeah 
So the magic and this kind of magic and religion go together. That's why I include it here because yeah. it's it's similar to living through in, by intuition, but it's how we act. Right. Well, we're at the end, and I so much appreciate your talking with us. If there were just one thing that you could say uh, for someone just tuning in about your book, what would that be? I would I think I would say that. If you want to find a really joyful approach to, to your religious life, return to joy and vitality and good humor and hope and a way to, to be in life and deal with all these things, all these things that bother us and depressions and challenges, that finding your own religion is a good way. That's an answer. And this, I spell it out as fully as I can. Well, thank you so much, Thomas. I sure. really appreciate talking with you. Yeah. I'm, and how can people contact you? Contact me at the, my website, careofthesoul.net. Great. I'm Anthony Wright, and I've been your host today on Attunement, and we've been talking with my guest, Thomas Moore, who has written a book called A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.